It is good to be with you all in the house of the Lord today, early service, 9 o'clock service. I love that you are here, and uh, I'm actually kind of excited about today's message. Um, every time I jump into something that's countercultural, I have maybe a little bit of an antagonist in me. Anybody here, like whatever, whenever people are talking or have a conversation, you don't mind being the devil's advocate, though I hate when people use that phrase. Anybody here kind of built that way a little bit? Like it's fun just to push back for the fun of pushing back. Uh, I can be that way a little bit. So whenever I am getting into a text that is going to kind of like, you know, chest up, you know, to culture, like kind of look at culture and be like, you don't know what you're talking about. I, I love texts that do that to society and culture uh, because we get to see a more excellent way to quote the, to quote the scripture, what I believe is a, a more excellent way. And so I'm excited to get into this. I do have two quick announcements. The first one is this. Uh, we, of course, as we're preaching and teaching through this series on love, what love actually is, um, we have the podcast where we're answering questions. This last week, Josh and I, uh, we dealt with, we had a number of questions come in, and uh, we ended up just answering one question, though there were, it was asked in a whole lot of different ways. And the questions were basically this. When I see, or I'm now beginning to see, so either I see it as a mature person or I'm beginning to see, where godly virtue and ways are not lining up with the world that I'm doing life in. So we saw this in like what I think were young kids, teenagers, like uh, some people turning cards that said things like, uh, at my high school, I'm beginning to notice the people I play sports with, like their, their virtues and their values do not line up with the with God. Uh, we saw one where it was like video games. What I do with video games is I begin to see that they, they don't line up with godly virtue. And we saw this all the way at the other end where it's like, hey, I'm a boss. And in my culture where I'm doing, where I'm doing work, um, I'm realizing more and more the value of maybe even the system I am in does not line up with God. What do I do with the dissonance between godly virtue, right, and the world that I'm currently living in? What do I do with this? And the truth is, this is an awesome question, though it came through all these different angles. The question is really one of, what do I do as God, it's, it's a revival question, as God unveils the truth to me, what do I do with that? So we talked about that question in detail, one question, the whole podcast, what do we do with that revelation of the dissonance between godly virtue and the virtues that our world lives in? So go to the podcast, check it out. Uh, definitely worth it. It was a good conversation this last week. The next announcement I have, I am very, very excited about. Um, God has been working in, in my heart a lot the last couple of years. I think maybe COVID helped kind of start a lot of this. The COVID season. And uh, I have been spending a lot of time, a lot more time in prayer as of late. Um, and I would do like daily devotions, that kind of stuff. Uh, but I actually, uh, man, this has probably been more than a year now. I talked with my admin and I was, Barbara, she's amazing. Barbara is amazing. Love her a ton. And uh, yes, she does deserve the, the, uh, the people behind the scenes that make my life actually survivable. Um, she is amazing. Anyways, I told Barbara, I was like, I want you to pack my days so I can have one full day to just pray. And so I've been working longer days, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday especially, so I can take all of Thursday to just pray. 
Um, so I have many times over at our different campuses, like, walked through the chairs. And right where you're sitting, put hands on your chair, pray over the person that will sit there on Sunday. For some of you that always sit in the exact same seat, I'll even call your name and be like, Lord, this is Kevin's seat. I pray in your name that you know. But like praying, praying for you because I, I love you. And, and even driving around the community and neighborhoods and spending time in prayer, just going before the Lord a lot. And, and I have kind of come out of, though I'm still doing this as a practice, I've kind of come out of this season feeling in my heart that we need to do more of this as a church. The church used to spend way more time, like the capital C church, all of church, way more time just in old school prayer. So I'm going to break modern church a little bit. And it's going to be real fun. At least for me. November the 6th, we are going to do our first. We're going to do it a few times this year. November the 6th, uh, I love you all. I know all of our online people. I lo- we're not going to do church online. We have a different service that we're going to stream for you. But November the 6th, we're going to meet at East Fishers. So this campus, not downtown, but this campus and East Fishers campus, we're going to meet just at East Fishers, November the 6th. And uh, we are going to have a morning in each of our services where we spend the whole time in prayer. Bring people who are sick. We're going to anoint them with oil and pray that God would heal them. We're going to pray, November the 6th is before the elections. We're going to pray for our country. We're going to be a church that gathers together, spends a whole morning instead of preaching sermons. We're going to spend a whole morning praying for the sick and even our country, you know, in places that it's sick. Pray for the elections that are coming up. Pray for revival. We are going to spend a whole morning just praying that God would move in a dynamic way on November 6th. So mark your calendars. I would love for you to be with us. There's a whole lot more details that will be coming along. Oh, it's up here. Um, So mark your calendars. We would love for you to be there November the 6th. Come, come, be a part of this. The whole morning we're going to be in prayer, praying for revival, praying for our country, praying for the election, praying for healing. We're going to be praying that God would move in powerful ways. Join me and my staff as we spend a morning in prayer. Listen, moms, dads with teenage kids, Bring your kids, grandmas and grandpas with grandkids. Your kids need to experience times like this. They need it. Uh, I'm old enough now. I'm in my 40s. I'm old enough that I remember old school Wednesday night prayer meetings. Anybody remember those when churches used to do those? Yeah, me too. I remember being a kid. You'd show up on church like on a Wednesday night and it's like, all right. There may be one or two songs, the altar would open, and we'd be praying for our country. We'd be praying for people that are sick. We'd be praying for families. I'd be praying for people that are struggling in marriages, that God would heal, that God would do what only God can do. We're going to bring back old school prayer meeting, November the 6th, Sunday morning, over at East Fisher's location. This campus and that campus, that's where you're going to meet. Definitely want to be there. I would love for you to join us in that. I'll share more about that in the weeks to come, but mark your calendars, November 6th. Be there or, or be square. Is that cool to say anywhere? I don't even, I don't even know if that's, that's, I'm old. Okay. Be there or be square. Today's message, I want to jump into today. Today is, uh, we are part of a series where we're describing, defining what love is. And, and what I mean by that is we live, just a quick recap, 
we live in a world where our language is living. So those that are in the academic world, you know this, are dead languages and living languages. Living languages basically just means that the language is still used. And if a language is still used, its words change meaning. Like what was cool in 1920, like that's cool, means something different than what it meant like in 1990. Right? When somebody said, you're bad, you know, was way different than the way Michael Jackson used it in his song, right? Like, words are constantly changing meaning. Um, Even symbols change meaning. Take the rainbow. Like, living languages are always tinkering with what things mean. It's what living languages do. And it can sometimes be really annoying, truth be told. Uh, But because of this, the word love, the way we use love in pop culture, so if you go to the store and say, I love those shoes, or even talk about marriage and we're falling in love, falling in love with each other, the way we use love in our modern world does not, does not necessarily line up with the way the word means in Scripture, the way it's used at that point in history to those people. The way it's used then does not necessarily equate to the same way we use it now, right? So when you read the Bible and you stumble across the word love, what you think it means might not actually be what it means. That's why we got to study what it actually meant to them at that time in history. Do you get it? We have to know what they actually meant when they used the word love. When Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. And when Jesus says, love your enemies. What does he mean with all of this? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Right? What does he mean by these phrases? What does that mean? The whole series has been this. So our text, one text, 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8, we have used to kind of be our centerpiece through this whole series. It says this, so just lean in close to these verses. Love is patient. Love is kind. We did that the first week. It doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. We walked through each of those in detail. It is not proud. We talked about that on a Sunday. It does not dishonor others, right? We've been through this. It is not self-seeking. That's what we're going to go into today, that phrase. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. And then the crescendo of this, love never, love never fails. That's our text. Today we're going to zoom in tight on 1 Corinthians 13, 5a, that section there where it says, it is not, or love is not self-seeking. Love is not self-seeking. I am learning a lot, uh, and I, I know I talk about the education journey for me because I'm so immersed in it and will be at least through this next May And one of the benefits of being at, at kind of this level of education is you're, you're studying with people that really care about the material a lot. They're all brilliant. And I'm so blessed because I get to study with people from all around the world. So in my cohort that I'm currently in, in fact, where I, I presented my last paper, uh, some of the people that I was presenting my paper to in my class One of them was a scholar. A couple of them are from Africa. One of them is a scholar from the Congo in Africa. Way different cultural reference. 
And so we get done presenting papers, we're working through it, and the guy from the Congo, the scholar from the Congo, he was saying that Americans in the West, like you Christians in the West, you have lost what he called the virtue of solidarity. You've lost the virtue of solidarity. And what he means by this is like, love is not self-seeking. The opposite of self-seeking, he says, they say, is this what they call, like in South Africa, the Christian churches there, they call it the virtue of solidarity. The virtue of solidarity is the right, the opposite end of self-seeking. The selflessness. And so the way that he would word it would be something kind of like this. Biblical love, biblical love should self-sacrifice to the benefit of your community. We is greater than me. All right, now, now hang with me for a second. Do you understand how countercultural this is to us in the West? Like we live in the post-Freudian, right, Greco-Roman, heavily influenced Pop culture, my emotional health, everything that's toxic to me, run as fast as you can from it. World, do you understand if Jesus would have run from what was toxic, we would never have had salvation. Okay, Uh, trigger warning. Today's going to be tough because I'm poking at culture as a whole and those parts of you that still really think like post-Freudian egocentric West, it's just going to rub you wrong. Please consider at least praying about it before you complain to me about it. I want to give you three examples that he, that we talked about in class, where he said the the virtue of solidarity is gone. And I even asked him, I was like, I need you to really show me that this is biblical. So we're going to get to that too. So I want to talk about cultural and then biblical. He goes, let me give you a few examples. And so here are some of them. One, he said, When you wake up in the morning in your neighborhood, so think right now in your mind, imagine your neighbors who lives to your right, who lives to your left, who lives across the street. When you wake up in the morning before you go to work in Christian, Congo, South African, that area, uh, and, and broader than that, but in those Christian communities, the way they embody love your neighbor as yourself, the way they embody that is, It is rude to go to work without first going to your neighbor, knocking on their door. Imagine doing this. Knocking on their door in the morning, and they come to the door, whoever gets there first, you know, knock on the door and go, hey, are you okay? Is there anything I can get for you today? No, I care about you. Just a quick contact with each of your neighbors before you go to work. Imagine doing that in our culture. Yet they do this, and they will often pray together. He was like, we often pray together. So we knock on the doors, and even to our non-Christian brothers and sisters, we'll knock on their door, and we'll ask them, is there anything I can pray for? And nine times out of ten, they'll be like, sure. And so they'll pray. Before they go to work in the mornings, they'll pray with their neighbors before they go to work. 
And I remember sitting in class going, wow, that, that, that would be weird. And then he gave another example. So here's another one. He said, in our culture, in the culture, in our culture, when you come home from work, you kind of do the same. You make your rounds with your neighbors right close to you. How are you doing? Are you okay? Is there anything I can do to help you? Uh, and then he said, when you eat dinner, it's rude to eat dinner with your front door closed. Now, in like Indiana winter, I thought, gosh, if we ate dinner with our front door open. But I get the idea, right? So it's rude to eat dinner with your front door closed. You want the smell of your dinner to kind of be out. So as people are walking by, I mean, imagine, think of the people that walk their dogs in front of your house and come by. Like, imagine that it's okay and expected for them to just kind of pop into your front door and be like, man, that smells real good. And you're like, come on in. Let me make, so you purposely make more than you need, inviting your neighbors into your house in the evening, giving them a quick bite. Hey, can I pray for you? How you doing? Checking in with them before they go to, imagine doing life that way. That's so foreign to us. Let me give you one more. One of the things that we talked about in class and the difference, he said, um, God, protect these words. I know this is painful for some. When divorce happens, in the West, we're always asking the question, who do we support, right? So like, do we support the husband in the divorce? Do we support the wife in the divorce? I mean, who gets the friend in the divorce? Like who gets the kids in the divorce? Who gets the friend in the divorce? So who gets to have the friend when there's a divorce that happens? So the question that we ask in the West is, who supports the husband? Who supports the wife? And he goes, who in your culture supports the promise that was made? Who supports the promise? Who are the people in your culture fighting for the promise that was made? And I'm like, well, I mean, there are some. But when you do that, everybody gets offended and they think you don't care about them. So do you support the husband? Do you support the wife? Or do you support the promise? Just let that sit for a second, okay? My intent is not to offend My intent is just to show you how different, how different they think. A way to say it would be like this. The African virtue, the African virtue of solidarity is the commitment to stay, the commitment to stay committed to your friends and family. Committed. I'm going to stay committed to them. I'm going to keep going to my neighbors, keep knocking on their door. Right? Okay, so now I know I'm going to be really on the verge of offending somebody with this. We talked about how revival, real revival, like in Africa, they're seeing God move in amazing ways in China and these different places around the world. I mean, massive revival. The sick are being made well. I mean, he was telling stories of like having services outside and a huge rainstorm comes. They're seeing this. This is not secondhand. I mean, it's secondhand to me, but not to the guy sharing it. He was there, right? And rainstorms come in as they're having these services, and the storm just splits and goes around the worship service outside. So you're like, 
in the crowd worshiping, you can put your hand like out in the rain. It just splits around you and the storm moves around them and then continues off in the distance. But here's the problem. We are so low committed to each other, so low committed to our church family, so low committed. I mean, it's it's about us. Egocentric, post-Fordian world. If revival happened in the West and God picked one church in Indianapolis to have massive revival happen... How many other brides of Christ would die as we were all like, see ya, I'm going to go with this family now. But in like the solidarity culture, like in your own family, you want your family to grow and be healthy. So you go and you learn and you, you be a part of a revival and you can't wait to take it back to your family. We just don't think that way in the West. We don't. Another way to say it would be maybe like this. My foreign doctoral colleagues point out that many Africans, so I just like put the contrast the other way. When many of the Africans move to the U.S., you know what happens to those Africans? They are... They're really, really lonely. There are millions of us in the USA living in physical and metaphysical or metaphorical closed doors and fences. We're just living behind, always living behind closed doors and fences. Both physical and metaphorical closed doors and fences. We're always living behind them. Because every time we get tight to somebody... It just has to go through something toxic. As you get into the guts of their life and they get into the guts of your life, it just gets hard. So this begs a really important question. The idea of solidarity is it in Scripture? We talked about that a ton because it's definitely African. I actually asked the question in class. I'm like, is this, like, I need you to objectively prove this to me. The idea of solidarity is prolific, and it is in Scripture. Let me walk you some of these, all right? You see it in stories like that of Ruth. I mean, listen to these words straight out of the OT, man, the Old Testament. Do not urge me. Think of all that's been lost if you know the story of Ruth, right? So, like, a mom and her two daughters-in-law in a foreign country. Husbands have died. They're totally broke. And they're going to go back. These two daughters-in-law are going to leave their home, leave their family. Their husbands are already dead and go with their mother-in-law. How much do you love your mother-in-law? Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. What kind of commitment is this? Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. See, we would all love somebody to say that to us, but we don't want to say it to them.
You see it in this selfless solidarity when Jesus held Seder with his followers, right? I mean, this is in story after story after story after story. I mean, obviously, I can't read the whole Bible to you this morning, so let me just treetop some of these. 1 Corinthians 13, 23 through 25, right? So there's Jesus holding Seder dinner with his followers. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, telling the story of Jesus doing this to the disciples. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So what are you willing to sacrifice? For your brothers and sisters in faith? How painful are you willing to go to not leave your brothers and sisters? What are you willing to put up with? Broken body, literally physically broken body. I will not leave my committed family. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper saying, this is the cup in the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Pour out my blood, break my body. I will not abandon my people. What if Jesus thought like a modern Western American post-Freudian egocentric individual? And he showed up and he was like, God... Uh, these people are real toxic. <laughs> They're making me feel bad. I need a break. I need to go to a new people. The selflessness that's described in Scripture is all the way into and through pain. Do you understand how countercultural that is to us? Do I support the man? Do I support the woman? Do I support the promise? You see the selfless solidarity when Jesus looked down from the cross and gave his mother to John. John 19, 26 through 27, when Jesus saw his mother, right? So Jesus is literally dying on the cross for his people, for us, bleeding out, broken body, selflessness to the max. And as he's dying, he looks down and he says, woman, behold your son. I'm going to die. Someone's got to take care of my mom. And then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. I mean, have you ever, we have so much more home than they ever had. We have so much more food than they ever had. Who have you ever opened your home to that's not your own biological family? We have more than they ever physically had. And yet it's so difficult for us to self-sacrifice. Again, I do not mean to offend. I just want you to see how different we are. You see it, the call to selfless solidarity in specific verses. Listen to these. I'm going to invite Josh up as I finish these texts. By this we know that we lay down, by this we know that he laid down his life for us. 
And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. What are you willing to sacrifice for your spiritual community? That's what this is. What are you willing to sacrifice for your spiritual? I mean, church in our modern world, church is like a commodity, like going and shopping at Old Navy. You only shop there as long as you like the clothes. And the moment you don't like the clothes, you go to a different store. That is so opposite of the way they viewed family in Scripture. Lay down our lives for our brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love even abide in him? Little children, little children, listen to the way he talks about you. If you think, just me, 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 in our raising of kids, who are the most selfish? I have a college kid and a one-year-old. I can tell you in my home who in my home is the one most likely to go, me, mine, I want it. No, it's the one-year-old. Little children, don't get mad at me, it's the Bible. Don't get mad at me, it's the Bible. It's the Bible. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Right? Notice this. This selfless solidarity, as they call it, is even a prime Christian evangelistic tool. The prime. The prime Christian evangelistic tool. John 13, 34 through 35. A new command I give you. Command. A command I give you that you love one another. Now, what does love mean in the Bible? We've been talking about it. Love does not mean preference like those are nice shoes. Love means lay down my life, self-sacrifice for somebody else, right? It's going to be perfectly laid on display with the cross, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just, just as I have loved you. How do we love one another? Like I have loved you, says Jesus. Broken body, poured out blood. That's big time. Then what does he say? You also are to love one another. Whoa. Verse 35, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. How will they know if you're real, if you're the real deal? If you have for one another. See, the way this is supposed to work is when a new person comes into a Christian community, when they come into Christian community, they're supposed to come in and go, Wow, these people are committed and for God and for each other at a level I've never seen anywhere else. Way more than a sports field. Way more than a gang. So my African scholars, biblical scholars, are, well, they're, they're right. 
selfless solidarity is required to understand the love of God. Can you see the shift? Jesus, in your name, please, please protect these words. Let them be the right balance of gentle and bone-piercing truth. The enemy wants you always offended. Alone. Constantly running from everything, everything that's... The enemy wants you to see toxicity in everything. So you're always on the run, always offended, alone. The enemy wants you offended, alone, and living afraid of others. That's where he wants you. Behind your closed doors and big fences... God wants you in a family practicing love. It's a movement from isolation to solidarity. Selfishness is the engine that moves you into isolation. And selflessness is the engine that moves you into solidarity. Biblical love is practicing, practicing. It's not perfect. We're humans. We mess it up. And listen, if you're here and as you become aware of this, you're like, oh my goodness, I have messed a bunch of this up. God loves you. Today, make a step in the right direction. That's it. Just make a step in the right direction today. Biblical love is practicing self-sacrifice for the benefit of another. So three questions, and I'm going to let you go, and they are as follows. Who do you need to open your door to? could benefit from generosity at a level that it actually is a little painful. And then the the $10 million question in the West, will you actually act on it? Get the next steps cards out and reflect on what the Spirit is speaking into you. If you're super defensive and angry or frustrated, pray about it. If you're challenged and you don't know where to go, pray about it. If you leave this sermon and you're just annoyed at how it affects you, you're still not seeing it right. 
If you're listening to this sermon and all of a sudden you have massive compassion for a person, you're starting to get it. Get the next steps cards out and reflect. Go. Hey, I I love you. Sermons like this, I just feel like I have to pause and go, I really, really love you. And I preach this way because I want you to have a life to the full. Thanks for listening to Sunday Sermon on the Made for More podcast. If you are not connected in a church community, we would love to connect with you. Send us a message on social media or fill out a digital next steps card at encountertrinity.com slash next steps.